Philippians chapter number two. You know, it goes, unfortunately, without saying too, too often, but uh, I'm so thankful for Pastor Andy and our worship team leading us in just gospel-rich songs week in and week out, drawing our attention not to feelings and emotions, but to truth that can inform our feelings and emotions, and uh, thankful for just the intentionality and the care Beautiful songs this morning to remind us of Christ. This morning's message will be really a continuation of of last week's message. We were reminded that uh, Philippians 6 through 11 really is, uh, Philippians 2 verses 6 through 11, really structured in the form of a poem. And he switches to this uh, this, this poetry, and many theologians believe that this would have actually been uh, a song of the New Testament church, kind of right, sandwiched right in the middle here of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi is this, this rich, gospel-centered, Christological poem, hymn that we can really just sink our teeth into and uh, find incredible truth about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we mentioned last week, is that really if there's any takeaway from this passage, it should be this, that Paul was so focused in everything that he did, everything that he said, it was really, could be tied back to in one way or another to the gospel, to the person and work of Jesus. Really up until this point, we've seen the gospel, we've seen Jesus And we'll continue to see that theme throughout the remainder of of chapter 2 and chapter 3 and 4. And uh, right here in the middle, we kind of have this recalibration, this reminder, again, exactly who Jesus is, exactly what he has done, that it really is quite a big deal. And that the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not just something relevant and applicable to our point of salvation in that moment where we recognize that we're a sinner and we receive that free gift of salvation by God's grace, we express our faith in the personal work of Jesus Christ. The gospel isn't just for that moment. The gospel is for everyday Christian living. For every single day of our lives, we need to be refreshed and we need to remember the gospel. And so right here in Philippians chapter 2, we have this most beautiful description, this hymn, this, this poem that is like a diamond that says, has so many facets that as you, 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 you hold it up to the light, you get to see the, the beauty of it glimmer and shine in new and fresh ways as Paul just unpacks the gospel for us here in chapter number 2. So we were reminded last week that we were called to have this same mind, this this mind of Christ as Pastor Dave uh, led us in verses one through four, we were reminded to do nothing uh, through rivalry or conceit, through selfish ambition. We were to be unified, to have the same mind, the same love, to be of one mind. It was about being unified, not around externals, but in the gospel. 
And so we were called to have this same mind that Christ had. He encouraged us to be Christ-minded in the way that we think and act toward one another. As they remember this common bond of unity that they have in the gospel. And the second aspect that we looked at last week, we remembered the example of humility that we have in the life of Christ. So Paul just, again, unpacks this disposition, this demeanor, this attitude, this mind that Christ had when he was on this earth and took on flesh that he lived and that he loved through always the lens of humility. And we examine those important elements of what has been described as the humiliation of Christ in verses 6 uh, through eight, and that humiliation came by way of the incarnation. A big idea of our message last week, and that will carry on through this morning's message, was this: just as Jesus displayed perfect humility in the gospel, we too are called to model His life of humble service to God and others for the glory of God. It was through this incarnation that Jesus put on display this life of humility. The process of Jesus, the very son of God, who was fully God, the process of Jesus taking on flesh and emptying himself, not of deity, but rather emptying himself of all the rights and and prerogatives and glories of heaven that were rightly due to him as God. So he emptied himself of those in theological terms as we study different elements of Christology, which would be studying the personal work of Jesus. We would refer to this reality as the the hypostatic union of Christ. This is the, the technical term to describe the union of Christ's humanity to that of divinity. There was a One hypostasis or individual existence of fully humanity and fully divinity. The God-man, Christ Jesus. This isn't pie-in-the-sky theology. This is a reality that we need to come to grips with that should inform how we view Jesus. Because without the hypostatic union of Christ, without the incarnation of God, deity, taking on flesh, that sacrifice would be lacking. It would not be able to save. It would not be able to atone for the sins of mankind. And so God took on flesh. His emptying himself, again, wasn't subtraction, but it was divine addition. It was God taking on flesh. So that brings us to verse number eight. This is where we hit the uh, strategic pause button last week. And let's pick up in chapter two, verse number eight. It reads this, and being found, Christ Jesus, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is an examination of really this final aspect of the humility of Christ. And Paul repeats really this same thought at the beginning of verse eight that he just brought us through in verse number seven. Do you remember verse seven? But emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It's important 
And Paul wants to make it very clear that the attitude and the disposition of Christ was that of humility. And being found in human form, he did what? He humbled himself. How did he demonstrate that? Not just through his incarnation, not just through this hypostatic union of Christ, not just through his taking on the form of a servant, but Jesus Christ also put his humility on full display through his obedience. He humbled himself, how? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So verse 8 could literally read, and being found in human form, he humbled himself still further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in obedience to the Father, Christ was what? He was obedient. He was humbled. John, the gospel of John chapter 14 verse 31 reminds us, of Jesus Christ living his life as he came to this earth in light of these realities, that he has come to do the Father's will. Verse 31 of chapter 14 says, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father. Hebrews 10, five through seven. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, Jesus says, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. John chapter number 12, verses 49 and 50, Christ says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he he modeled humility, namely, through his obedience. This is one of the most practical, practical aspects that we can look and observe tangibly through the life of Christ. That How was he humble? How did he demonstrate humility? He obeyed the Father completely and perfectly, without hesitation, without reserve, willingly, freely, responding rightly to the Father's will. There really is no greater way to demonstrate outwardly an inward attitude of humility than through our obedience. Let me say that one more time. There there is no greater way to demonstrate outwardly an inward attitude of humility than through our obedience. Those of you that, that have children could probably attest to this. How do you know that, that your children truly love you and honor you and desire to, uh, to be uh, obedient to the Lord and to be humble within the context of the home? There's no greater way for them to put that on display than through their obedience. This was no different in the life of Christ. How can we know Jesus loved the Father? How can we know Jesus desired to obey the Father? How can we know that Jesus was was perfectly humble in his work as he walked and, and talked and lived in this world? We see it through his obedience. 
So do we remember verse five in light of those realities? What, what was verse number five? Look up there with me. Have this mind, Paul says, among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is a call, a command, an imperative. Have this mind among you. What mind? The mind of Christ. The mind of Christ that was, that was humble in all things, in all ways, perfectly and completely. So this is the mind that Christ Jesus had, and this is the mind that Paul is calling us to have, to exemplify and to, and to imitate and to emulate in our lives, to be humble. How? As Christ was humble. Not pursuing our own preferences, our own desires, our own way. This American culture that we live in, if we can't have it our way and on our terms, it is way too easy for us to just simply check out, to say thanks, but no thanks. The life of Christ, the life of the believer is coming to Jesus on his terms, not our own. So Jesus Christ modeled this type of humble obedience perfectly for us. And as we gaze to the face of Jesus, as we we linger and we observe the, the life of Christ as described in Philippians chapter number two, We should constantly be going back to verse 5 and and challenging our own hearts and minds and saying, Paul, this was what you desired to see in your readers. And we we span the, the, the time and as application for us today, for the church, we too are called to consider this challenge, to have this mind among us, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Those that are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit working in our midst, we too can absolutely live this humble life of obedience to the Father. So Paul intended for us to imitate Christ in this way. In drawing his reader's attention to the obedience of Christ, Paul clarifies the extent and scope of this obedience. The obedience of Jesus to the Father was put on full display through what means. Verse number eight. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. The obedience of Jesus to the Father didn't stop at simply proclaiming that he was the Messiah. And living as king on this earth. He modeled humility taking on flesh the form of a, of a servant. Literally the form of a slave. He came to serve and not to be served. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to seek and save the lost. Jesus Christ was crystal clear about these Realities and obedience didn't stop at the point where it was comfortable. He didn't stay in his controlled little comfort zone. Jesus Christ obeyed the Father's will completely, even to the point of death. You see, following the will of God and obedience to God often will take us through difficult waters. Ultimately, the Father's will for Jesus was for him to give his life 
Again, in our American brand of Christianity, we just somehow believe that you know, we're exempt from trials and difficulties and persecution that God's will for Jesus, yeah, that was, that was unique, right? He was, he was Jesus Christ, the Messiah, but often God the Father will have his will paved for us through the means of loss and challenge and difficulty. This isn't anything for us to escape. This isn't anything for us to try to avoid. We're to embrace the Father's will in good times and bad, just as Jesus Christ did. Have this mind among you. The obedience of Jesus to the Father, again, was put on full display through the death of Jesus, and not just any death, but by means of a Roman crucifixion. Even death on a cross. When Paul would have included this simple word, cross, in the letter to the church at Philippi, it likely would have sent chills down their backbone. It would have caused the hair on the back of their neck to stand up. They would be fully aware and completely in the know in regards to what death on a cross would have meant. Paul's readers here. At the church of Philippi, if we remember, Philippi was a leading city in the district of Macedonia. It was a Roman colony. So the church at Philippi would have been primarily Roman Gentile. So when Paul declares that Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross again, this would have lingered in their ears as they read this letter, heard it read. Why? It was a horrible death. It wasn't any martyr's death. It was the worst kind of death. The Romans had perfected the art of death and torture by means of crucifixion. It was the epitome of shame and humiliation and pain and torment and torture. It was reserved for the worst of the worst, thieves, murderers, adulterers, and the like. Jesus, the Son of God, took on not just any death. He he took on and endured the worst death. This is how obedient, this is how humble our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was. Friends, let us linger there at that moment and consider the love of Jesus and his humility and his obedience. This was the extent of his humiliation. This was the extent of his humility. The Son of God, God in the flesh, was obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you remember Jesus praying to the Father in the garden at Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He was obedient. When a commentator summarized it this way, the cross is the measure of Jesus' humility, the lengths to which he was willing to go in obedience to the Father, 
even the lowest position possible was not too low for the humble mind of Christ. Only the greatest humility, which was exemplified in the lowest mindset, could willingly accept the lowest place possible. He was not too proud to wear our skin or bear our sin. Friends, many of the points that I'm summarizing this morning are all too familiar for us that may have grown up in the church. We know the aspects of Christ's obedience. We know the events that led up to the cross. We remember the suffering and the shame and the hurt, the pain that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ endured for us. But oh, how the cares of this world quickly sweep in, do they not? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the weaknesses of our flesh, they dim out these realities, the beauties of the gospel, exactly the extent that Jesus went to for my sin, for your sin. So friends, let us never fast forward through the gospel. Let us methodically work our way through the person and work of Jesus and let it impact our hearts. Let, us, let it inform our minds, our thinking. Let it cause us to reflect on how we are living. And is this mind of Christ ours in this moment? Are we walking in simple, humble obedience as Christ modeled for us? This brings us to our third and final point in this hymn of Christ. We've seen the call to have the same mind of Christ. We looked at the example of humility in Christ. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the results that's produced in exalting the name of Christ. The result of exalting the name of Christ. Paul makes a clear shift here in verse number nine. Look with me there. It starts out with a double conjunction that is translated in our English version just simply, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So we now have a transition. This is the second half of this hymn. We have three stanzas uh, in, in the former verses, uh, six through eight, and then we have three stanzas now in verses nine through 11. And we have in verses six through eight, the humiliation of Christ, and now we transition in the latter half of this passage in verses nine through 11, we see the exaltation of Christ. We have this very important word, therefore. This double conjunction, diokai, 
is translated in the ESV, therefore, this double conjunction could also be translated, that is why, or for this reason. So Paul desires for this latter portion of his poem, or this, this hymn of Christ, to build upon the context that preceded, which was, it was what? It was the humiliation of Christ. Christ being brought low through the incarnation, that hypostatic union of him taking on flesh, the form of a servant. So based on this incredible example of humility, how does God think? Or maybe more clearly, how does the Father think about the person and work of his son Jesus through his death on the cross? Jesus has been humbled. He has taken on our our sin. He's been shamed. He's been born in the full weight of humanity. And died a death he did not deserve, but he died a death that was fully necessary. And as such, the Father now acts. That said, it's important to note that the Father has been active. Yes, even in the humiliation of Christ, as the sovereign and perfect plan of salvation unfolds in this hymn of Christ. The text would have us to be careful to guard against any idea that this exaltation, that it's some form of a reward for Christ because of his obedience. One commentator states it or summarizes this warning, this caution in this way. It does not say that he who was humbled and humiliated was afterward exalted, was indeed rewarded for his self-denial and obedience. That is not what the text says. He goes on to say, but what it says is that precisely he who was abased and humbled, even to obedience of death on a cross, that Lord, that Jesus, that Christ is also the exalted Lord. So there is no response of God the Father to the obedience of Jesus. Jesus was obedient to the death on a cross and he is the exalted Lord. So God the Father is simply clarifying who Jesus already is and was and will continue to be. This is nothing new that God is establishing at this moment about the personal work of Jesus. He's simply reminding us all that this is who Jesus has been and this is who he will always be For all eternity, he will be the exalted Lord. So friends, these subtle nuances of understanding God and how he relates to his children, for me, it can radically change and impact and inform my thinking of how I relate to the Lord. We want to be careful to not subconsciously affirm a works-based salvation, that because I obey Jesus now loves. Because I toe the line and check all the boxes, Jesus now offers grace. This is not the gospel of the Bible. God's grace is present in my obedience. Yes, for without it, I would not even be able to obey So to view my obedience outside of God's divine enablement, it would cause the very act of obedience to be nothing more than the self-righteous filthy rags of Isaiah 64. I cannot obey apart from the grace of God. 
I cannot earn my salvation. I cannot do good on my own works. So friends, as we see Christ obey and we see this perfect Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son, it should inform our thinking of what the gospel is and how it comes about to provide salvation for my soul. It is all because of God's grace. So we see the activity of the Father described most clearly in these two verbs that are present in verse number nine. Let's read, therefore, what has God done? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God is the subject of these two verbs. It is he that has first highly exalted him and two bestowed on him. God the Father is doing this work. That said, let's look at this first verb, highly exalted. God has highly exalted him, meaning Jesus Christ. This word carries the idea of exalting to the highest place. This is the most literal translation of this word in the original Greek. This word carries the idea of exalting supremely, to, ex- to supremely exalt another And then we have the second verb, which is bestowed. This has the idea of freely given. How God the Father supremely exalted Christ and through what means did he bestow upon Christ? It was through his name. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul wants there to be no question about the deity of Jesus Christ. God the Father has established the name of Jesus to be the standard, the highest exaltation of a name that could possibly happen. It is bestowed upon him. It is given to Christ. He is the highest name, the name of Jesus that could ever occur in this universe. It was through his name, the name of Jesus. So it's in these final two stanzas of the poem that we see the consequences or the results that are produced by the Father as a result of Jesus' name being exalted and bestowed upon him. What happens as a result of this? Verse number 10, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So verses 10 and 11, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess it is at the name of Jesus the name that is above every name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. What then is the name that is above every name? It's Yahweh. God the Father is affirming 
God the Son in that perfect, again, unity that they experience within the Trinity. The Son should be understood, again, as 100% God and 100% equal with the Father in that relationship. So God the Father presents this great reversal that's taking place here. The one that has been humiliated, the one that has been brought low, the one who has taken on the form of a servant or a slave is now being exalted to the highest place. And every knee is bowing, every tongue is confessing that this lowly, humbled servant is God, that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is a beautiful reality, a beautiful truth that we can never grow tired and weary of proclaiming. So these two Verbs of exalting and bestowing produce the bowing and the confessing. And these two verbs in verses 10 through 11 are verbs and terms of worship. This is the rightful goal and aim of this hymn of Christ for Jesus to be worshiped as Lord. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Let's talk about bowing. What's the significance of bowing? Bowing the knee expresses supplication. It expresses abasement, worship, subjection before one in authority. Do you remember Psalm 95, 6 through 7? Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. And what is the response to those realities? Come, let us do what? Bow down in worship. These are activities and actions of worship. So the church obviously should be and is openly engaged in this activity of worship now, but this song also looks forward in eager anticipation of the day that all of creation will join with his bride, the church, and bowing a knee to Jesus as Lord. There's anticipation that is layered into this hymn, that is layered into this poem. There's expectation and hope that although persecution may be the present reality of their day, although there seems to be resistance and, and conflict and abrasion right now on this side of eternity, although there's difficulty, hardship, loss, there's a day that is coming that not just the church the gathered bride will declare that he is Lord, but all of creation will bow a knee and worship the Lord. All of creation will openly express complete submission before Jesus Christ. Finally, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is the second result that is due because of this exaltation of Jesus Christ. This word used here for confess carries more of an acknowledgement. Every tongue will 
not just confess verbally, but they will acknowledge internally that these realities are true. So it's not someone who's being forced to say anything that they don't believe. There will be a day that will come Will all doubters, this side of eternity, will acknowledge and believe and know that Jesus truly is Lord. Man, this hymn of Christ looks forward to that day where everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is the irrecoverable Lord over all Things. Every tongue will give a heartfelt and genuine confession to these realities. And to what end or for what purpose does every knee bow and every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord? To what end and what purpose does this serve? To the glory of God the Father. What is the chief end of mankind to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We see these in confessions, in catechisms. Scripture uh, reminds us over and over again that this is the purpose of mankind, to glorify God. This final phrase is the summary statement of the entire hymn, the glory of God. Everything that takes place in this hymn, even the humiliation of Jesus being brought low, willingly giving of himself and dying on a cross, this all coupled with this beautiful description of this exaltation of Christ, it all serves to bring what? Maximum glory to God. This isn't about us. This isn't about what we can gain as a result of being a part of the church or a part of a follower of Christ. This is about God. The one who has made this redemptive plan of salvation possible through his son, Jesus Christ. It is about the glory of God. The one who did not leave us in our sin, did not leave us without hope, but he sent his own son. That is, John 3 reminds us that whoever, uh, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the glory of God. The glory of God comes through the gospel. It comes through the person and work of his own son, Jesus Christ. The glory of of God is achieved through the gospel. So friends, Paul inserts this incredible hymn right here in the middle of his letter because he is seeking to recalibrate the minds and hearts completely on the person and work of Jesus for he is our joy. Are you troubled in this world? Run to Jesus. Are you discouraged about your present circumstances? Run to Jesus. Are you uncertain about tomorrow? Run to Jesus. Jesus is the answer for all of our troubles this side of eternity. And even in the midst of troubles and difficulty, even if circumstances don't change, Christ is enough. He is our joy. 
And so Paul is anchoring his readers' attention. He's anchoring their hearts and their minds on this unchanging truth of Jesus, the gospel. Jesus is our joy. It's the gospel that will inform the rest of his teaching that is to come. All the imperatives, all the calls to action, it will all be influenced and fueled by this reality that we see in chapter two of Jesus. So then we remember verse number five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord in one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Don't look on your own interests, but rather on the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ humbly modeled in perfect obedience, verses one through four. And it is the personal work of Jesus, the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we are to be unified around. So friends, let the gospel change us this morning. Let Jesus Christ and what he has done in his person and his work and his life and his ministry as he walked on this earth, as he gave freely of his life, as he went to a cross and shed his blood to atone for the sins of mankind, as his body was taken down in a tomb and as he went through death and defeated sin, death and hell and rose again victorious, let us remember that we too have that same victory in our lives. Let us walk as Jesus walked. Let this mind be yours, which is in Christ Jesus. The hymn of Christ, this beautiful poem, reminding us of the good news of the gospel. Let's close in prayer this morning. Father God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have this morning, I thank you that as your gathered church here at Liberty Hills, that we have the opportunity week in, week out, to gather and proclaim that Jesus is Lord and that He has a name that is above every name. We thank you for these realities. And we so look forward, even in the day we live in, with chaos and a division and sin and the brokenness that is in our world because of sin. We long for a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth, angels, mankind on this earth, demons, everybody will proclaim that he is Lord. So Father, until that day, I pray that you would cause us to proclaim those realities even now. Let us not grow weary in proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Father, we believe that you are still 
in the business of saving souls. You are still redeeming a remnant. You are still drawing men and women and young people to yourself. So Father, I pray that we would be your ambassadors, that we would be Christ to this world so desperately needs the hope that is found only in the gospel. And so I pray even as we consider this text, I pray that it would be in terms of having this mind among ourselves, that we would take on this humility. We would consider the example. We would walk as you walked. You would, we would live as you lived. We pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us to do those things and to do them only for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.